Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. We are in this series that we are referring to simply as Acts, the Church Unleashed and on Mission. And what we're doing is we're just walking through Act, the book of Acts and seeking to learn and be challenged by it. So far, if you maybe missed a couple of the, the messages, let me kind of update you on where we are. In chapter 1, we saw that we must be committed to the mission, that, that the mission God has given us as a church, we have to commit to it. In chapter 2, the first section, we saw that the mission is connected to a message and then in chapter, the end of chapter 2, we saw that a commitment to the mission changes what we are devoted to. And we're going to kind of continue that this morning. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever traveled outside of the country for a mission trip? Not just for a vacation, but for a mission trip. Anyone? A few? All right, a handful of you have. One of the things that I've been blessed to be able to do over the years is travel outside of the country for the purpose of mission trips. Uh, mostly my travels have been in Central South America, but I've also been able to go to the Philippines, which is like a 23-hour plane ride. It's crazy. The plane ride was honestly miserable. Um, you ever been on, anybody ever been on a plane ride that long? Do you agree that it's miserable? Some of you? Maybe it's just because I had that center seat. I was traveling, I was a youth pastor at the time, and I was traveling with a pastor, with a pastor of the church. He invited me to go with him to Ilo Ilo, Philippines. And, uh, he says, by the way, the only thing is you have to sit in the middle seat because I'm not going to. I was like, well, okay. Um, so for 23 hours, like sitting like this. But one of the things that's interesting when you travel overseas is you get to see some amazing things. And those of you who have traveled, even if it hasn't been for mission trips, you've been able to travel and you've seen the different cultures. And sometimes you walk into some of these countries and you get to see some some differences in how they live and how they operate. And it's, it's pretty amazing. But I heard a story from a missionary who guys now a pastor in Tennessee, but a story of, of when he was a missionary in Africa. That I found pretty interesting. He was in Africa and one of the things they were doing at this place they were is they were trying to start churches in a lot of different villages around kind of this city where they were kind of based. And so their, their goal was every couple of weeks to travel to a different village or every couple of weeks to travel to about seven different villages. And eventually the goal was going to be to plant churches in those villages. And so they would go in and they would start building relationships with people and meeting the village elders and kind of getting to know the people, building some rapport, some trust. And then hopefully they would be invited to come and plant a church in that village. Well, one day they were in this in their base city, kind of the central hub of their ministry and out of the blue, these two or three people came up who were from one of the villages that they had visited. And they came in and said, we are begging you, pleading with you, please come to our village and pray for our village elder. And the missionary was kind of surprised and really wondering what this is all about. I mean, the, the villagers knew that he was a Christian missionary. They knew that he spent time in prayer. But why would you want me to come to your village was basically what he was asking. And they said, well, our, our village elder is very, very sick. He's been very sick for several weeks now. He is about to die. We want you to come and pray for him. And the, again, he looked at them and said, well, why would you want me to come and pray for him? And they said, well, we've tried everything we know to try. And they basically had a witch doctor kind of a person. And they said, he's come and he's done everything he knows to do. And he got worse. 
And we've tried all our medicinal herbs that we know and nothing has worked. And we have prayed to our gods and done to our sacrifices and knelt before our idols. And he keeps getting worse. He's only got a couple of days left to live. Will you please come and pray? And the missionary, before he said yes, he stopped and talked to these people and said, well, something you need to understand. My God doesn't normally work like this, meaning he doesn't normally just do things like what you're asking him to do. You don't even believe in him, but but I will come and pray. And basically what he was doing is he was trying to let them know that I will come and pray, but there's no guarantee that God will choose to heal your elder in your village. And so he went and they went on the couple hour drive into this village and they got out and they were walking towards this mud hut. And this mud hut, as they walked in, it was hot and there was a fire in it and it was smoky. But there in the middle of the hut was this elderly man laying on this mat in this hut. And you could tell he was unresponsive. He, he, pulse was weak, fever was high. You could tell that he was that did not have long to live. And so the missionary went in and knelt beside him, laid his hands on him and prayed. And he prayed that God would heal him and he prayed that God would do some amazing things there and that God would raise him up and give him strength. And when he finished praying, he got up and left and they drove back to the city. And he said he really didn't have any expectation of ever really hear anything again. Two weeks later, they were going around their kind of their circuit and going to visit this village once again, as it was their pattern every couple of weeks. And as they turned the corner driving into this village, when the town people when the village people saw them coming in, saw the vehicle coming, they all ran and flocked to this vehicle. And they were singing and they were dancing and the missionary and the family were looking around saying, why are they, what's happened? And as they got out, the missionary recognized something. The man in front of the line leading the singing and leading the dancing and leading the praising of God was the man that two weeks earlier was laying on this cot in the middle of this mud hut about to die. God had healed him. And as this missionary was telling this story, he basically said that he was reminded of two things. One, he was face to face with the fact that he really did not have faith in the power of God. That even though he was a missionary who proclaimed Christ and talked about God and talked about how we should believe that God could do amazing things, when it came down to it, he really didn't have that much faith in God. The second thing he said he was reminded of is that our God is still a miracle-working God. That he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he was reminded of that fact. Well, that story somewhat mirrors what we see happening in the first part of Acts chapter 3. We see this amazing miracle take place. We see this person healed. We see this person who has never walked in his entire life, all of a sudden able to walk, leap, jump, run. But the question is, how does this fit in with the story in the book of Acts? I mean, as we're looking at this story and we read this account, how does this fit with the idea that we are to pursue the mission that God has given us? I mean, for the past several weeks, I've been challenging you as our church to understand God has given you a mission and you must be committed to that mission. And at the center of that mission is the message of Christ. We must pursue it with everything. Well, how does this fit? I mean, when we see this miracle taking place, how does this fit into the story? Well, 
The basic idea is that Jesus must be at the center of our lives and Jesus must be at the center of our ministry. And you're going to see that as we go through. If you have your bulletin with you this morning, on the back is an outline. I'm going to walk through this. What I want to do is give you several questions that you can ask to help you determine whether or not Jesus is truly at the center of your life. Whether Jesus is truly at the center of your home. And then for us members of Highland Park, is Jesus really at the center of our church, at the center of our ministry? Jason read a few moments ago the first ten verses. What follows, starting at verse 11, is this sermon that Peter is preaching. We'll get to that in just a moment. But let me give you the first question this morning. Here's number one. Do I have faith in the power of God? Do I have faith in the power of God? Peter and John are coming coming into this area. And if you look, look with me back at verse 1, we'll kind of walk through some of this. You notice that they were coming to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at three in the afternoon. This is something they did every single day. Kind of picture this. They come to this temple, the church, if you will, every single day to pray. And they, they come across this one day, this man who has been lame from birth. He is sitting at the gate. And what normally would happen is the parents, the family, the close friends of this individual would come. And twice a day they would bring him to the, to the gates of the temple. And understand these gates were not a gate like at your house. Imagine the gates going into a football stadium or to a back basketball arena. It's huge where many, many people could come and pass through. And twice a day, they would set this individual there so that he could beg, so that he could beg for food. Because the only way that he was going to have any hope of having his needs provided for was out of the generosity of the benevolence of other people. And he would sit there day after day and beg that people would give him. But most of the time, people would simply walk through and they would completely ignore him. They would sit there and they would not pay attention to his needs and they would not pay attention to to his crying out and his plea for help. So this is the situation that Peter and John are now walking in and they see this individual. Verse three, when when he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple complex, he asked for help. What would normally happen is the individual who was there begging would want to talk as many people as possible. I mean, this was a numbers game. So he would look at someone. He said, hey, I need help. And if he didn't think they were going to respond, he would immediately turn his gaze to someone else. And if they were going to respond, then he would stay focused on them. But the second they gave him anything, he would move on to the next person because this was his livelihood. This was his business. When they saw Peter and John enter, when he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple complex, verse three, he asked for help. Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. He had already looked away to somebody else. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Get up and walk. Verse seven, and taking him by his right hand, they raised him up. And at once his feet and ankles became strong. Here's what's interesting to me. Think about the faith and the power of God it takes to look at someone who's been lame from birth in front of all the crowds and tell him, get up and walk. I mean, why would you do that unless you fully believed that he was going to get up and walk? I mean, from my standpoint, I would be hesitant to ever say anything like that if I was living back then to say anything like that. Because I was afraid I would say, hey, get up and walk. And he would just sit there and look at me. We're like, well, that's embarrassing. The reason why they looked at this individual and they said, get up and walk, is because they had faith in the power of God. They truly believed that when they looked at this individual and said, get up and walk, that God would allow him to get up and walk. I also find it interesting that what this man thought he, what this man thought he needed was not what he really needed. Every single day he is sitting there by the temple gate and he is begging for money. He is begging for resources. He's perhaps even begging for food. 
But when the disciples look at him, they do not see his what he thinks his need is. They see the real need. They see someone who doesn't just need money or who doesn't just need food, but there is a more deep-rooted, more serious, more real need that he has. And so they look at him, and through the miracle that is performed through them, the man turns to God. In fact, you see him in verse 8. He is walking and leaping and praising God. Here's the point. There will be people who will come to you and there will be people who will come to our church and who in their mind, they have a need. But what sometimes people think is their real need is not their actual root level need. Meaning there will be people who will come and they'll be looking for help with their marriages. But what you and I know is that Jesus is the only one that can truly heal and restore marriages. There will be people who come who are caught in the bonds of addiction. And they think they need help with their addiction. But what you and I know is that what truly can set them free from their addiction is a relationship with Jesus Christ. There will be people who will come who have just recently lost a loved one. And they'll be dealing with grief. And they'll come looking for a church who's willing to step out and help them navigate their grief. And they'll be dealing with this and they'll be sorrowful and they'll be burdened down but what we understand is the only thing that can truly make the loss of a loved one have any sort of hope is the relationship with jesus christ there will be people who will come who will be struggling with finances but what we understand is that it is a relationship with christ that alters your priorities see what people oftentimes see is their need is not really their deepest need you know one of the things that i'm convinced of is that we as a church as we are pursuing the mission that god has given us we have to be willing to reach out and minister to and help those who are broken and in need in our community i mean if we really say that we believe and we have faith in the power of god then we have to be willing to go to those who are who are in bondage of addiction and say god can set you free We have to be willing to go to people whose marriages are falling apart and say, we believe Christ can heal this. We have to be willing, if we really believe in the power of God, to go to whoever it is, whatever struggle they are facing, whatever whatever bondage they are in, and say, we believe in the power of God. We want to help you. See, if we say we believe in the power of God, but yet we neglect those in the community who are hurting, who are broken, who are in bondage, then I wonder if we really believe that God has the power to set them free. I I would love for us, in fact, I would love for us in the fall to be able to start different programs geared towards ministering to hurting people. In fact, I got an email this week from a family in Florida, and they're planning on moving here later this summer. And two weeks ago, they lost their six-year-old boy. He'd been battling illness for a long time. And two weeks ago, he passed away. And the mom emailed me and asked me, do you all offer, they're planning on a a visiting here when they come into town, and she asked, do you all offer any kind of grief support that can help us navigate this period of grief in our lives? And I was reminded, again, as I was studying this, we have to be willing and prepared to minister to those who are broken and those who are hurting and those who are in bondage. We have to be willing to step out, even though it may be uncomfortable, and say, we believe in the power of God. We have faith in the power of God. And no matter what you are facing, and no matter what you are dealing with, and no matter what struggle is in your life right now, God can help you, and we want to come alongside of you. But I think there's something else that's important for us to acknowledge. It is not just those on the outside of the church who are broken and are are in, in need of help. 
I mean, there's some of you this morning that even it's Mother's Day and you've got a good, strong front on. But deep down, there's an addiction you're dealing with. And deep down, your marriage, you know, is in trouble. And deep down, there is something that you are struggling with that you have no clue how it is going to work out. And there is sorrow in your life right now from the loss of a loved one that that you're hiding very well, but it is tearing you apart. And some of you may be dealing with financial struggles and you're wondering where is help going to come from. And some of you are, are facing all kinds of issues and you're looking, where is their help? And I want to proclaim very clearly to you all this morning that I believe very firmly that God has the power to intervene in your life. God is still a miracle working God. I believe that. Do you? No matter what you are facing this morning, no matter what heartache you are experiencing, what struggle you are going through, God can help. And listen, as a church family, we have to be willing to minister in those situations. And yes, there may be messy situations. And yes, it may be trying. And yes, it may cost us something. Effort, time, energy. But if we really believe in the power of God, we have to be willing to jump in and get dirty so that we can see God change lives. And when we do, I believe we will see just that. I believe we will see lives transformed by the power of God and by the power of the gospel. But it will not happen unless we first truly believe in the power of God. Number two. Second question is this. Is Jesus at the center of my life? And as a church, is he at the center of our ministry? Look at verse 6. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of who? Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. This phrase, in the name of Jesus Christ, is central to the book of Acts. In fact, you, you will find that phrase some 35, 40 times throughout the book of Acts. They did miracles in the name of Jesus. They baptized in the name of Jesus. They were bold in the name of Jesus. They were willing to die in the name of Jesus. Why? Because as they were communicating this message, this mission, that Jesus is what you need, they understood if for this message we are communicating to have any impact, that Jesus we are proclaiming first has to be central in my own life. So that brings us to the question, is Jesus the center of your life? Is Jesus the center of our ministry? Number three. Third question is this, am I filled with amazement when God works? Verse 10, all the people saw him walking and praising God about halfway through verse 10. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. Here's the reality. Here's the truth. Too many Christians are filled with cynicism and skepticism instead of awe and amazement. And that may be you. In fact, that's me to a point, if I'm being perfectly honest. I'm a very analytical type of a person. I remember in college, I would hear stories of, say, a student who had this school bill and he had no idea how he was going to pay pay it. And he supposedly told no one about it. And he prayed and he went to his mailbox one day and in his mailbox was the exact amount of cash that was needed for a school bill. And he was talking about how God had blessed and God had worked. And I remember sitting back thinking, yeah, right. You went around telling everybody and you found somebody who felt sorry for you and they gave you the money. I was skeptical. Are you all like that? All right. I was a little bit cynical. I mean, I was looking at that saying, oh, God. God. I mean, I know God can, but that, that God's not going to do that. You know what? I'm, I'm not going to say I have learned what I am learning. Is that if we believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he is a miracle-working God, and that we, if we truly say that we have power, that God can do the miraculous, when we see things happen, 
instead of assuming that it wasn't God, as believers, we need to assume it was God. Here's why. When in my skepticism and in your skepticism, here's what happens. When something like that happens and we, we are, we're, we're cynical and we're skeptical and we say, God didn't do that. Here's what happens. We stand in the way of God being glorified. Because instead of standing up saying, look what God did, let me share with you how God has worked. Let me show you how God has provided. Let me show you how God has healed and how God has delivered and how God has brought this marriage together and how God has set set people free from this addiction. When we say, no, that wasn't God, what we are basically saying is God does not deserve the glory in that situation. And instead of being someone who is a conduit to God's glory, we are a barrier to God's glory. See, looking back at that situation when I was in college, and that happened a, a number of different times, and every time I was like, yeah, right, that didn't happen. Looking back now, it wasn't, the, then I just thought the skepticism was irrelevant and affected nothing. What I realize now is that my cynicism and my skepticism was a barrier to God being glorified. Listen, let's not stand in the way of God getting the glory. When the miraculous happens, when when healing is provided, when God does amazing things, instead of assuming it wasn't God, as believers who believe that God is a miracle working God, and as believers who claim to have faith in the power of God, let's assume it was God. Why? So that God can receive the glory. So that God can be glorified. I mean, some of you, you have had serious illness in your life, and God has brought you through that. Give God the glory. Some of you have had marriages on the verge of falling apart, and today they are healthy and strong. Give God the glory. Some of you have been in so deep in addiction that you could not see the light of day, but God has delivered you. Give God the glory. Let's be a conduit to God's glory instead of a barrier. And this flows very closely in with number four. Here's the fourth question. Do I reflect or absorb God's glory? Verse 13, while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people greatly amazed ran toward them. Here's basically what's happening. They see this individual who had been lame since birth. He was a fixture, daily fixture at the temple gates. They all of a sudden now see him running and jumping and praising God. And so this crowd begins to form. The people coming around say, how in the world did this happen? They're, they're curious, they're inquisitive. These believers in God who have passed by the broken day after day now are all of a sudden curious and interested how he is up and walking. And Peter and John now have an opportunity. So think about this. Peter's first sermon he ever preached, 3,000 people were saved. I told the early service this morning, I remember the first sermon I ever preached. I planned, I prepared, I was ready for 35 minutes, got up, preached, six, seven minutes, it was over. I was like, I got nothing else. I was thinking, I must be in the wrong line of work. I mean, I had nothing. I was really quite, I mean, it was, it was bad. This church invited me to preach and, and I, I was all excited and got up and was like, well, I guess you're all getting out 25 minutes early. I got nothing else. Peter and John now have Peter's preached. 3000 people were saved. He just told a lame man guy who'd never walk, get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. And now all the people are coming around. How did this happen? And Peter and John are kind of at a crossroads, aren't they? On one hand, they could say, we we know we've been working really hard. And uh, um, we've we've really been hoping this would happen. And we've really been faithful and going to the temple every day. And they could kind of start taking some of that credit, absorbing some of that glory. Or they could come back and they could say, listen, it is not us at all. 
In fact, when you see this down in verse 12, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You go on down, you see again that they proclaim that Christ has done this. God has done this. They believed in the power of God. They saw God do something amazing. Instead of taking some of the glory, they said God alone deserves the glory. Here's a key point for us. Church, you listening? As we see God do amazing things, and I believe we will, I I believe as we commit to this mission, we will see lives changed, we will see lives transformed, we will see people saved, we will see people baptized, people's marriages will be restored, I think we'll see people delivered from addiction. But as we pursue this, and as we see this, we have to understand something. None of it is about us. None of it. I mean, myself, the deacons, we cannot change lives. We cannot change hearts, right, deacons? That's a little weak, come on. We can't do it. We can simply be faithful to what God has done, but as God blesses and God intervenes and as God works, we step back and we say, God, it is all you. God, you deserve all the honor and God, you deserve all the glory because there is nothing we can do to cause these types of things to happen. As we see growth in our church, it is not about us, it is about God. Determine this morning that you will reflect any glory that is given back to God because you understand that it is God who saves and it is God who changes lives and it is God who makes a difference and it is God who sets people free. We can't do it. So part of trusting in the power of God is understanding that when God works, we give him all the glory. It's not an 80-20. It's not that we take 20% of the glory and give 80 to God and somehow think we're being generous. I mean, the very breath we have to serve him is a gift from God. So let me ask you, when you see God do amazing things, first of all, are you skeptical about it? Or if you do acknowledge that God is the one doing it, do you give him the glory for it? Let me give you number five. We're going to go through this last point and these sub points pretty quickly. But number five, here's the question. Do I take advantage of opportunities to communicate the gospel? Do I take advantage of opportunities to communicate the gospel? So this crowd is coming up around Peter. They're wondering what has happened. Instead of just saying, hey, God did this, Peter says, oh, I've got, a, I've got an audience. So let me kind of communicate something to you. And really verse 13 down through the end of the chapter is this sermon that Peter preaches. Let me give you four things about this really quickly. A, it's Christ-centered. Verse 13, he has glorified his servant, Jesus. Verse 14, the holy and righteous one, referring to Jesus. Verse 15, you killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, referring to Jesus. Verse 16, by faith in his name, what name? The name of Jesus. Verse 18, the Messiah, referring to Christ. Verse 20, that he may send Jesus. Over and over and over, you see the emphasis on Christ. Again, reminding us that Christ must be at the center. The reason why Peter and John's ministry and the ministry in the early church had so much power and transformed so many lives is because they believed in the power of Christ and Christ was at the center of all they did. They never stood up and proclaimed a message with which Christ was not at the center of it. They never did anything unless Christ was the focus of it. B, the sermon he is preaching is clear on sin. I find this interesting. They are bold in proclaiming this. Halfway through verse 13, it says that, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Here's what Peter's doing. 
He's standing up in front of the Jewish crowd and saying, you killed Jesus. He is blunt about their sin. Now we're going to see the very next chapter, chapter 4, if you look ahead, there are consequences for this. You're going to see some of the things that they endured because of their boldness. But in part of our gospel proclamation, yes, we focus on Christ, but we also have to be clear on sin. See, this message called for repentance. Verse 19, therefore repent and turn back. And then D, this proclamation of the gospel is certain of forgiveness. And I love this point. Verse 19, if you look at it, therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. So in, as we take advantages of opportunities to proclaim the gospel, we focus on Christ. We don't gloss over the reality of sin. The Bible says we're all sinners. We call for the need for repentance. But then we also say when you repent, God forgives. It is a certainty. So I've given you five questions. Five things that we have to look at and ask us, ourselves about our lives. So let's tie this together before we close. God has given us a mission. If you're a believer here this morning, God has given you a mission. And as we come together and worship together as a church, God has given our church a mission to take the message of Christ both locally and globally. That's the mission that we have been given. That is the task that we have been charged with. We understand that there is a message connected to that. And as we commit to this, our 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 those things that we are devoted to, they begin to shift and they begin to adjust. That was the challenge last week. But the challenge this week is very simple. Is Christ at the center of your life? I mean, is Christ at the center of your life? Is he at the center of your home? Is he at the center of our church? See, if he is, then you'll answer these questions differently than if he is not. I mean, if Christ is at the center, then you'll look at this question about trusting in the power of God and you say, yes, I do trust in the power of God because Christ has transformed my own heart and he's transformed my own marriage and he has set me free from things. Do you give glory to God? If Christ is at the center of your life, then yes, you will give glory to God. You, you will reflect glory back to God. If Christ is at the center of your life, then yes, you will take advantage of opportunities to proclaim Christ. I believe very firmly, I think the stats are, I mean, we, we, I read the stats a few weeks ago, 20,000 people here, several hundred thousand, I mean, I think three quarters of a million people in the region around us. People are hurting. Some of you are hurting. People are broken. People are looking for hope. They are looking for help. And one of the things you may need to pray about this morning is, I mean, I would love to be able to start some ministries reaching out to these people, these individuals. And God may be leading some of you who are not currently involved in ministry to lead a grief support group, to start an addictions ministry, to be involved in financial counseling through the church, to, to help people with marriage struggles. God may be leading you and impressing on your heart this morning that, yes, as a church, in the pursuit of our mission, we have to reach out to those who are hurting and those who are broken. And if we truly believe in the power of God, then this will be a focus. Why? Because we believe God can transform lives. God is still a miracle-working God. And so I believe very firmly that as we pursue this mission, we have to reach out to those who are broken. You know how many people every day walk past this individual who had been lame from birth? They walked by him and they saw someone who had no hope, no future, no way of helping. 
No way of contributing to the temple. No way of contributing to the cause of Christ. When Peter and John walked by him, they saw an individual who needed Christ. They saw someone who needed the power of God to work in their life. And as a result of them stopping and focusing on this individual, it gave them an opportunity to proclaim Christ to the masses. Let's be willing to focus on those people that most people will neglect. Let's reach out to the broken and the hurting. We stand with me this morning. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.